number you have dialed has been changed. The new number is... Welcome to the Stuart Knight Show, where interesting, intriguing, and exciting people engage in unscripted exchanges of ideas, stories, and perspectives. It's not an interview. It's a powerful conversation. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to the Stuart Knight Show, a show where I have incredible individuals with very interesting backgrounds on the show to have what we always like to call a powerful conversation and one that will hopefully help you boycott what you thought, where we want to challenge some of your old ways of thinking and get you to embrace a new perspective on a big topic. And I'm really lucky to have the amazing Ritu Bassine on the show this week. She's a globally recognized leadership and inclusion specialist with a mission to create a more inclusive and empowered world. She's also a passionate advocate for social change and a dynamic public speaker. Uh, She's won several awards and distinctions for her efforts, including the City of Toronto's William P. Hubbard Award for Race Relation in 2014. And if that's not enough, this amazing lady is the author of the Amazon best-selling book called The Authenticity... Whoa, I can't even speak. The Authenticity principle and that came out in uh, 2017 we'll be talking about that as well and above and beyond all of this my friends the thing that Ritu holds closest to her heart and has nothing to do with her bio but it's the very fact that she gets to be call herself my friend is that not true Ritu? <laughs> oh yes I do but we'll see how it goes today and if I could still call you that did you know folks I mean we're I'm not sure if you heard that just there but I think in the theme of authenticity that was about as authentic a laugh as we could have had at my comment of her being my friend. I, I'm not sure if I want to continue. <laughs> well, you know, Stuart, uh, I think I told you a few years ago when we when we became friends. First of all, you're a newer friend in that we we really just met a few years ago. Yeah. Um, and it's as a as a as someone who's now in her 40s, it's like I, I'm. My friend chest is quite full and I don't even have time for myself, let alone to see all of my friends. So I'm pretty like selective in who I befriend. And so you made the friend cut, but you're also a dude. And I, as a woman, gravitate more to befriending women. So I was like, oh my God, I made a dude friend and you're a white dude friend, which really, I now think it's like getting rarer. You're like, you are a unicorn in my life. <laughs> you know what, folks, if you haven't picked up on it, uh, Ritu is not white, and, uh, <laughs> which means a miracle I've even had her on the show. And, right, we're our, oh, that's our first race. And we're comment. starting already. Here we go. I, was like, I said to my team right before we we got on, I'm going to go do a podcast with Stuart. I'm so excited, and I can't wait to talk to him about white supremacy. <laughs> and you know it's funny, folks. Okay, so if you haven't picked up on it, and if there's anyone out there right now who has their chin dropped to the ground, Ritu and I have a very fun relationship in the sense that we like to, uh, you know, poke fun at each other. We like to have a laugh, and we like to basically just call out some of the craziness that we experience on planet Earth. And so when we make some of these jokes, you can be assured that we are not serious. For all the people of color out there that think that I just made a very racist comment, Ritu will be the first one to tell you that uh, that's something that uh, you know those are the kinds of jokes we make with each other all the time. Either way, I'm sure I'll get some hate mail regardless, which is always fun because it keeps me on my toes. Um, I should also say that the very first time that Ritu and I ever hung out, we went out for dinner and um, <laughs> at, at the, at the, uh, at the uh, encouragement from someone else, they said, you guys should really get, you guys should be friends. And at the end of the dinner, I always remember this, and you just made me think of this, I, I, I put a piece of gum in my mouth. I, I would like to have some fresh breath at the end of my dinner. And uh, Ritu immediately started making fun of me, saying that I was putting the gum in my mouth because I was thinking that maybe this was some sort of date. 
Do you remember that? Well, um, I don't vividly recall that, uh, but I knew you were in a relationship. I was, I'm sure I was mocking you. So I'm sure your listeners will, will pick up uh, that we have a very jokey, mocky uh, kind of friendship and relationship. So I'm sure I was mocking you. I was like, From the get-go. why are you doing that? Like when, when you are going out with uh, a man for the first time um, on a date and at the end of the date, he puts a piece of gum in his mouth. It, to a woman, it often signals he's going to, he thinks he's going to get a smooch. Right. And I'm sure I called you up. I mean, I knew we weren't on a date, obviously, <laughs> but, but I probably did that for that reason. Well, it was funny. And I, 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 it always stuck with me. So listen, I know we don't have a whole lot of time together. So let's jump right into this. Um, I do want to talk, obviously, about inclusion, diversity. And folks, if you're listening to this conversation, you will uh, you get ready. Because Ritu and I, uh, we don't bullshit. We don't... Um, pull any punches. Uh, I ask Ritu and challenge Ritu quite often as much as she challenges me on these really big topics. And and quite often we, it's not weird for us to go down a path where we find ourselves maybe speaking in a way that others might deem to be um, not politically correct or in a way that uh, is taboo or is uh, sometimes almost even a little bit of abrasive. Well, that's one thing I love about our relationship is that we, we, we've had arguments about big subjects. Uh, we disagree on some of the things that, um, you know, that the other person holds dear to their heart, and yet we still uh, fully respect each other. And, and so that's what, uh, that's what I want to do with this. I don't want you and I to think, oh, you know what, now we're in the public eye right now. We're not having a glass of wine in a restaurant where no one's listening. I, I want us to have one of those conversations because I think it's important for our, our listeners to, to hear that. So that was my premise into the into the, into my first question, which is not not a heavy hitting question. But you know, you used to be a lawyer, and I mean, technically, you still are a lawyer, I imagine. Um, and but you you chose to go a completely different path, right? You could have gone that typical path of a lawyer, which is you know get a job in a big firm and work your way up the ranks and make lots of money. Um, but you became a, a speaker, an author, a coach. What made you pivot and leave being a lawyer and, and moving into the field that you're in today? Yeah, you know, it was a lack of happiness mm-hmm. and a lack of feeling joy in my life and needing more purpose and meaning. And, you know, there's so much research out there about how to live a full, anchored, uh, joyful life that points to purpose and meaning. And I, I had become a lawyer because I wanted to do social activism and social justice work. Um, I'm 44 now, but think back to like the uh, mid nineties. Back then, social enterprise, social activism, well, social enterprise didn't really exist. Social activism, if you wanted to do it, there were only a few career paths really, like you became a politician or you went to the nonprofit world or you became a lawyer. And so I decided to, to become a lawyer and it, I, at the end of the day, and I thought I'd end up um, doing work in a in a social justice clinic, but like a lot of law students, I got swept into the corporate world tide because of money and social status. Uh, I I went to Bay Street, which is akin to U.S. Wall Street, to practice at a big uh, Canadian law firm because at the time I thought, oh, it's great for learning and development and all that. But the truth is I went because of social status and money. And, and I was making more money in my first year of being a lawyer than my parents made combined growing up. And so, uh, and I, I found myself after 
uh, a few years of practicing law, hating it. And then I transitioned to becoming an HR executive, like a leader at one of the Canadian firms doing talent management. And I did that for seven years. But after 10 years of the legal profession under my belt, I realized that I was unhappy. I felt lost. Uh, I didn't know who I was because I, in order to get ahead, I had changed and morphed and conformed so much that I no longer even knew who my authentic self was. And I knew that there needed to be more in life. And so, you know, so many people, I meet them all the time at my various talks I do around the world or across social media. When people message me, they'll say, I'm, I'm not happy in my job. I don't know what to do. Uh, I don't know what to turn to and and I can really relate because that was a seminal moment for me. So when um, when you say that and, and as you know I, being a speaker myself I do hear that a lot people saying mm-hmm. you, know, like, you know I really just want to do something and I don't know what to do I don't know how to do it it feels so overwhelming to them and, and my big thing I say back to people is Start anywhere because anywhere is a place and anywhere will lead you everywhere. And I think that that's a big mistake people make because they think that they have to do it all at one time. But they right. know it's just it's taking one step. So what was your kind of first step or your first five steps? Because obviously it's not like you said, okay, I'm quitting my job today. I'm going to start a company tomorrow. Was no. it, or was it, a, was it a radical change or did you just start kind of moonlighting a little bit before you jumped fully out of the corporate world? Yeah, it's a great question. And and I give a similar version or a response to what you just described. I think a lot of people, when they make career jumps, they're very linear in their thinking. They're in job A, and they think, I hate job A, and what I really want to do is job B. And they'll think they can move from A to B, and then they'll start to try to navigate towards B, and they realize, oh my gosh, getting job B is a lot harder than I thought. So for me, I've had two massive career transitions. My first transition was leaving the practice of law and becoming an HR leader. So I went from job A to job B. My job B was that HR leader. And then after my second career crisis, uh, identity crisis, which is what I call it, happened when after 10 years on on Bay Street going, like I'm done with the corporate world like this, what do I do? And that's when I shifted to job C, which is the one I'm in now, where I essentially created my dream job. And the, the... Anchor for me, and I think this is critical, and it goes back to what I just said around purpose and meaning, is I have built a career, a job for myself around, I believe, my mission in life. Like, I believe the reason that I walk this light, this, this earth in this form for this lifetime is to disrupt forms of power, privilege, supremacy, and oppression that permeate the way our society is that holds some of us back and allow others to thrive. I want to be in a world where as many of us as possible can thrive and feel included and feel belonging and more. And I've built a life around that. And so on days when I am feeling shitty about work and my life on a whole, like, for example, like this week, like even today, I, like last night I'm at my therapist and I'm complaining about how exhausted and overwhelmed I am and all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it happens even when you have your dream job, everyone. Um, I, I still feel rooted and grounded because I'm not selling widgets that I hate. I'm selling my life's passion. And Purpose and meaning really is everything. And so I developed a business around it. The other thing I'll say, and this is so supremely important, because I get asked all the time as an entrepreneur, as a successful entrepreneur, as a successful woman of color entrepreneur in a world designed against us, not for us, um, what helped me set myself up for success? When I left 10 years of working in a corporate job, like on Bay Street, 
I didn't realize I had done this. Um, I didn't realize that this strategy would end up helping me as much as it did, but it did. And I talk openly about it. Uh, my parents are immigrants to the country. Um, they came to Canada almost 50 years ago now. We're from India. And growing up, they didn't actually teach us a lot about financial management, although there was a lot of conversation around money and it being scarce and 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 um, and us have, wanting to focus on like saving and being frugal and all that. But the one thing they repeatedly did talk about is not carrying debt, so uh, so not uh, spending money you didn't have, and actually spending well below what you made. So they always said, save a lot and spend well below what you make. Right. And so I grew up with that mentality, and I, I had that. I held that. So on t my 10 years on Bay Street, when people were buying fancy shit, like fancy cars and fancy um, technology, well, well, I did buy fancy shoes, so I can't deny that. And I did buy fancy handbags, and I did go on fancy trips, and I ate a lot of fancy meals. And I'm the, I'd be the first to call out and recognize my privilege in doing so because I recognize I have tremendous privilege in the fact that I was even able to access higher education and go to law school and work on Bay Street. So I get all that. But the point is, people around me, around me who had money were doing fancy shit, and I was not doing as fancy shit. Like I was still doing fancy shit but not as fancy. Why? Because I was saving money and I was living well below my means. And I did that partially, well, because my parents taught me to do that. But also I, I always had the belief that, you know, this doesn't bring me tremendous joy. Like I'm learning and I, and I have joy in moments, but this is not my heartbeat. And one day I may leave here. And if I leave here, I need to be financially stable enough to do whatever I need to do. And I knew that when I left Bay Street, the likelihood was that I was going to cut my salary in half or I might make a third of what I was making. And so I be I needed to be ready for that. And so what I always say to people is do not let golden handcuffs uh, get you stuck in what it is that you're doing. Make sure that you save a lot of money um, and that you create a financial safety net for yourself so that when you need to make fundamental life shifts, you are better able to do that. And by the way, this advice works for anyone. Like you can be starting off as a student and have debt and still be keeping that advice in mind. And if you're affluent, keeping that advice in mind. So, okay. Um, so, okay. I was beginning to wonder if you ever were going to actually answer my question. You finally actually got there. <laughs> so. Uh, oh my God. I did answer. Not only, first of all, not only did I answer your question, I gave you, you and your peeps so many good nuggets, whatever. It was, it was mind blowing. And, and, and trust me, um, I, I'm glad that in this, uh, today's podcast, I'm going to be able to get three questions <laughs> done, um, as opposed to maybe like 10 or 15. So that was great. Okay. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you save money. That that's but you know, so you, you know, just just answer this question in like in one sentence. <laughs> oh my god, I love it. So basically, this is Stuart's indirect slash direct way of telling me, Ritu, would you please shorten your answers? I love it. <laughs> so you know, I, I figured you know maybe since I told you to do that before we even uh, started recording, that maybe that would um, that maybe was resonate. short for me. That was short. <laughs> that was not. That was not short and sweet at all. Okay, so listen. Um, but so basically, you put, you put some money away, which is you know very typical okay. uh, immigrant thing that we we get taught. My parents did the same thing as immigrants to Canada. They, it was crazy. It's like the idea of even having anything on your credit card was like, it was a sin. Exactly. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. However, um, did you, how much, like how much time did you, did you buy yourself out of curiosity? Like, did you say, okay, I can go one year and not have to work? Yeah. So I did, you know, they call it like a back of a napkin calculation. I yeah. actually sat down and I crunched my numbers and what I, first, uh, this is an important takeaway. I think a lot of us, when we want to 
quit her job and start a business or take on a new job and take a financial cut. We think we need more money than we actually do. Yeah. And when I did the calculation, I was like, oh, it's not going to be a bazillion dollars a month. I will, I will be able to do this. And my safety net was 18 months. Wow, that's amazing. You know, I used to do um, a, a course called the Evolution Group. And during the career section of the course, one of the exercises that the, um, the group had to do when they went home for the week was to really break down uh, on a piece of paper all the things that they absolutely need. It's very important to them. I say, so I said, be honest with yourself. If you really need a fancy meal out every single night of the week and you think that you really need that, then write that down and put, the, put a, a number next to it. And I said, when you come back next week, I want you to all give me the number that you need to make per year in order to live the life that you want to have. And it was so interesting because when they came back, um, across the board, and every time I did this course, it was always the same thing. People were always amazed at how little they needed to make in, right. order, to, in order to still be happy. They 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 thought they had to have a job that made them, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. And it turned out they 100%. only needed, you know, sixty thousand dollars a year. So, um, so there you are. You 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 do that thing that so many people want to do. You ask yourself, what am I passionate about? What is my reason to be here? And then you say, I'm going to create a job around it. And and you start thinking about things like writing books or uh, doing uh, professional speaking, um, blogs, uh, podcasts, whatever it might be. And so fast forward to today, you are now doing that. And I just asked you before you came onto the call, um, right before you we started recording. I said, how many staff do you have now? So you get five staff members. With, five with you so four staff members which is a huge accomplishment you've got these incredible people working for you and you've got uh you know your fancy office downtown toronto so you're there you're now you now travel around the world you speak about inclusion diversity um and all these important topics why is why is it important like you say that your your job and your in your your raison d'etre is to is to influence the oppression and, and, and to, uh, disrupt it. to yeah. disrupt it and to, and to change people's perspective. Why is that so important? I mean, and, 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 and take that from a guy who says, obviously I'm, I'm an intellectual enough to know that we have humongous problems of racism and bigotry and Islamophobia, you name it. So, but, but why do you think it's important? Oh, oh that's a big uh, question. Um, because, these systems of hate hurt me personally. Um, they've hurt me personally since I was a kid. Like I'm a survivor of racist childhood bullying, which was relentless. Mm -hmm. And I experienced it over um, several years. And if it, if it was not for the therapy and the self healing work that I undertook uh, to, to, to get out, to, to get past it, um, I think I would be, I wouldn't be here where I am today. And so it's, for me, it started from a very young age with experiencing racism at school and then entering into the work world as a young brown woman trying to navigate, navigate a, a white male domin dominated uh, industry and profession, let alone everything else that I saw around me and I was experiencing, let alone everything that my parents were experiencing as new immigrants and my uncles and my aunts and my family members and friends, community, and then people who, to the communities that I don't belong to, but that pull, that I stand next to as an ally and a friend and a supporter, like people from the LGBTQ communities, for example, and watching hate and intolerance targeted and tied back to a gender identity and sexual orientation and more. Like I just, from it's, it, it started for me personally. It is personal. Like I remember learning back in undergrad, the personal is political and the political is personal. For me, I can't, I can't, 
take away or deduct or subtract these elements from my life because they are my life. Mm -hmm. And so it's entirely personal for me. But then it's also collective because, you know, Stuart, like I, I often will say if there is one person in our society who is hurting. So, for example, when we look at experiences around physical disability or mental health um, uh, challenges, if there are people in our in our family or in our society who are hurting and whose needs are not being addressed and they are feeling marginalized and oppressed, I am hurting too. And there's interconnectedness of being. And, and so that's why I am so committed to this. Okay. And then so for you then, um, when you look at the world around you, how big is the problem? I mean, many people, and I would imagine many uh, white people, I guess you call it, or people who are not of color, um, really feel like we've made major inroads. Uh, people will use references such as, look at you know the, the days when, when black people used to have to sit in the back of the bus or there used to be segregation in the schools um, where you know there were the kinds of things that uh, we would hear as kids that you no longer hear people saying anymore. And people will quickly give themselves a pat in the back for has, how far we've come. Do you think we've come far? <coughs> Excuse me. Do you think that we've... Yeah. Have, you made, know, have the strides been big? So, so I mean, obviously we have made some social progress because we're in a place where um, overt and di direct segregation no longer exists. Or, mm -hmm. for example, women can vote and women can hold jobs in, in uh, Canada and the U.S. That um, people uh, from the LGBTQ communities can openly share their sexuality mm -hmm. uh, and their gender identity and more. So, yes, we've made some social progress, and I, I don't want to minimize that or take away from that. But at the same time, for so many of us in society, we continue to both experience overt and direct forms of discrimination and oppression, but uh, but we also in tandem experience like subtle micro forms of inequities and in addition to systemic oppression, which is can't be minimized and we can't ignore. And so in one breath, I can say, yes, we've made progress. But in the very next breath, I'd say we still have a long way to go. Like if you look at the stats and the data around the advancement of women in the workplace, mm -hmm. it's like it's going to take at least 100 years for women to catch up in terms of leadership roles and uh, pay compensation. Right. Like that's a really long time. If we continue to main, maintain the status quo on how we are advancing women. And by the way, I'm talking cisgender women. Like We could get into another a conversation around the experiences of trans women sure. or bring in intersectionality and um, when it comes to, to gender. And so, so uh, yes, we've made progress, but we have a shit ton more to do. Right. And, and, and so then um, when you are talking though, about the kinds of racism, bigotry, uh, oppression that you are tackling, which of course it comes in many forms. Uh, but it just occurred to me that you and I would both agree that there of course is uh, racism and bigotry um, and oppression uh, amongst many other cultures. So it's usually, um, it, when we think about this, we obviously think about what white people have done, which they have their, uh, they, they have their, their, their cross to bear, no question. Um, 
but that's the wrong expression. They have they they have their dues to pay or their whatever they their 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 crimes to to stand for, and and that's the better expression. So you mean like white people need to be held accountable the, for the, their the, yeah? And I think that when in North America when we have these conversations, it's quite often that's what we're referring to. We're referring to the oppression the oppression that white people have. Uh, created and, and, and put onto uh, people of color, uh, the LGBT community, and and so people from uh, ind indigenous people, indigenous people, yep. uh, women, yep. yes, and 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 I will be the first one to agree with that. Um, and maybe I shouldn't be going on this tangent, but I just want to know what, get to what your thoughts are. And, and I just, I'm just curious more than anything because we've never spoken about this. But we know that, for example, there is racism between Chinese and Japanese people, mm -hmm. uh, Trinidadian and Guyanese people, um, mm -hmm. you know, Pakistani and uh, people from India, you know, and on and on, and, and South Asian people. You know, right. I, I could go, the list goes on and on. Do you, is that a part of your life where you're like, you know, what, I'm only one person, I got to pick and choose my battles because I'm not. I'm not trying to fight that oppression. That's that's way too far for me. Or is that? Or do you do you do you see it as being under the same umbrella of the work that you do? So I'm interested in in um, advocating for the interruption of all forms of racial oppression and racial bias, racism. So I, I'm all about it. Um, I call it out intra group. So for example, I'm South Asian. My people are from my parents are from India. Um, in India, we have intra group. Uh, racial bias and racism existing as well mm -hmm. uh, and so and 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 I've been asked this question many times before and he, and so hate has always existed we're hardwired to hate um, before in, before white supremacy took over ruling the world forms of racial ethnocultural stratification did exist and so but that too isn't great so we're, that, that's bad wrong mm -hmm. we want to be eradicating that as well but in where we are right now in our place and time in society picture if you will that there is a racial or ethnocultural hierarchy uh, a ladder uh, in our, our global society and at the top of that global hierarchy uh, when it comes to race and ethnoculture are white people and in particular Anglo-rooted white people because I would argue and we can talk for, uh, for a while about how Eastern European people or other parts of Europe where people may self-identify as having white skin they too have experienced forms of marginalization or oppression. Mm -hmm. But at the top of the global racial hierarchy, ethnocultural hierarchy ladder, you have Anglo-rooted white people. Right. And, and, and this, it, we have historical legacies of colonization and imperialism that spread globally around the world to countries, nations, communities of color and indigenous peoples where Directly and indirectly, people were socially conditioned. They were taught to value white people and whiteness over their own cultures and other people's cultures. It's called the internalization of oppression or the internalization of racism. So you may find, for example, that there are communities of color around the world who prefer white people over their own people or other communities mm -hmm. or, or will put themselves higher up than another community of color to elevate themselves up that social ladder as, as to bring themselves up. But it's a, it's a, it's a house of cards because the problem is, uh, and it's a fool's game. When we have the, we, when we believe that by elevating ourselves and pushing other people down or hating on others, it'll elevate us. Like it's like that it's a mistaken belief that elevating ourselves by hating on other people will actually cause us to rise. Mm -hmm. But this is what the internalization of oppression and, and bias 
and uh, racism looks like. And so, yes, we have intragroup racism existing in our society among communities of color, but the problem is it's still rooted in a white supremacy lens. Right. It still puts white people at the top and communities of color and indigenous communities down. Are you, so if I'm getting this correctly, getting this correct, if let's say, for example, uh, you know, some, some, somebody who is, let's say, Chinese uh, makes a racist comment about a Japanese person while they're sitting at their dinner table, are you saying that on, on, a, on a deep historical level, that individual is actually doing it with the intention of moving themselves up closer to that kind of whiter tier, the tier at the top? Oftentimes, that's what it's about. It's con- unconscious. It's not like you're like consciously of doing course, it. Of course. I mean, think about it. Let's let's strip away race here for a moment and just talk about like people in a friend group. When it's like, so oftentimes people will hate on one of their friends, and when you really think about it, it's like, why is this person hating on that person? It's like unconsciously they feel like shit about who they are. They feel weak. They feel inadequate. They feel unworthy, and it gives them that moment of feeling elevated and better to right. push someone else down. Yeah. Now we can bring race into the dynamic, and this is the same thing. It's the, the I feel better by pushing myself up this uh, racial uh, ladder or this hierarchy. Okay, I, I got it now. That's okay. Um, so then... What but, are... but the last thing I'll say here is... Oh, I apologize. The, the fundamental thing that we need to be doing is interrupting white supremacy, which is at the top of the ladder. Okay, and then how do you do that? <clears throat> I mean, I know that you have to... It's all about having conversations, it's about teaching, but... What else do you do? Aside from teach? Yeah, like how do you disrupt? Like, is, is, is part of it yeah. even just educating white people who may uh, not even know that they're oppressing others? Yeah, how about this? How about this? Like, I'll give you a really good example. As you may have seen in Canada, for your Canadian viewers in particular, this will resonate. We had a recent example uh, in the news where one of our some uh, two famous journalists, uh, Don uh, Cherry and Ron McLean, who co-hosted uh, Coach's Corner for Hockey Night in Canada, right. um, were doing their thing on a Saturday night while hockey game's on. Don Cherry basically went on to this massive race, racist rant uh, tied back to Remembrance Day, akin to Veterans Day, and people not wearing poppies to commemorate um, the wars, uh, World War One and World War Two in particular, and went on this racist rant. And Ron McLean, if you watch the footage, I'm laughing, it's not funny, but kind of, but then not really, um, is stand, sitting next to him, just looking at him, and just not, it doesn't say anything. He actually has a what the fuck look on his face, mm-hmm. but then simultaneously, but it is, is nodding his head softly, gently, like it's not like a vociferous nodding, but it's sure. just like there is a nod happening. And when I watched it, I was like, oh my goodness, Ron McLean, are you nodding at Don Cherry as he's saying all this racist shit? And then <laughs> when I continued to follow the coverage on the news, it turned out that Ron McLean spoke out immediately apologized for not saying anything, that he was horrified mm-hmm. by the remarks. He was really embarrassed that he himself in the moment didn't say anything and more. And I I, I love Instagram. I'm on Instagram all the time. On Instagram stories, I, I posted my commentary about it. And what I said about Ron McLean is that for me, it was an example of two things. First of all, that white men, privileged white men, he is a privileged white man because he gets to be on TV and he makes a good salary and yada, yada, yada. And he can influence people's minds by what he says on media. As a privileged white man, so many privileged white men have not um, developed the competency to call out racism. So I'm sure he, part of him probably didn't know what to say 
on sure. how to call out the racism of Don Cherry. But the second thing is that some for for anyone, any of us, even as a person of color who um, is an expert on interrupting racism, there are moments where I too, my nervous system shuts down in the moment because I'm so shocked by what I'm hearing and I don't know what to say or do. Right. And so uh, it even happens to me. And so. We all need to own our behavior. And I know you know all about this because of the work that you do, but in order to create systemic change, each of us must own our own universe of behavior. And so it's like when the the next, in advance of a situation happening, like when you know that Uncle Bob is going to say some racist shit on Sunday night, because he usually does, uh, in advance of having dinner with Uncle Bob, you want to be preparing yourself to say, what am I going to tell him when racist crap or sexist crap or homophobic crap comes out of his mouth. Like, what am I going to say? And what should a person say? I know it's, it, it differs from different from situation to situation, but generally speaking, you know, what is it that we need to say? Cause I know for me, I'm lucky enough uh, to be a person who has, uh, I think a pretty um, courageous personality. And I have found myself in uncomfortable situations where I've been at someone's house and I've said, you know, that's really homophobic or racist or sexist that what, of what you've just said. But a lot of people don't have that kind of courage, no fault of their own. Um, but what, what did, what would you encourage them to do in these moments? So let me ask you, cause I, th- I think it's really great what you're, what you're saying right now. So when you're at a table and someone says something, uh, offensive, Will you automatically say to them that's really racist or offensive, or like what? Like what? What comes out of your mouth? Normally, I would say my first uh, approach is to really get them to think about what they've just said. I'll say, I'll say, are you sure that that what you just said does that feel true for you? Do you think that's absolutely true? And because I, I, I know from experience that if I attack them. I'm going to lose them as an audience immediately, and I'm not going to really ultimately reach my goal, which is to change their perspective. Mm-hmm. And and so I really I, I prefer to do it with questions as opposed to telling. I prefer. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's true? And then when and what experiences have you had about black people or gay people or people of of color uh, to lead you to that conclusion? And then so I keep asking questions, and I say, well, how many you know. Um, South Asian people do you think there are in the world? Like I really kind of get them to do the math on it. And it's like, so your one experience, you think that those, whatever, how many billions of people would all be like that? So that's usually my approach. Yeah. And I, you know, and I would say that you're, you're absolutely on the right track. Like my usual uh, starting point when someone says something that I'm like, huh? is, and by the way, that sound, huh? is what we say in Punjabi culture when someone has said something. It's, it's our version of what the fuck. It's, huh? okay. just, you know, okay. yeah, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to spread it throughout the world. I want people to know what that sound is. Right. Okay. That's the sound so. that white people make when they're taking a crap. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. I was going to make a joke about this. Back to bland food. Oh, God. Oh, okay. anyway, anyway, go here we go. Here we go. Okay. It's so, food that makes us crap, just so you know. Okay, here we go. Yeah. Um, so I usually start with a question myself. I usually say something to the effect of, oh, um, sorry, what was that? Or um, <laughs> what did you mean by that? Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's a very neutral, open-ended uh, moment, a question, encouraging the person to repeat what they said. Right. Because it gives them an opportunity to check themselves. Like, And so they may in the moment go, holy bleep, I can't believe I just said that. Right. Why did I say that? I shouldn't have said that. Mm-hmm. Uh, or they'll repeat it. In which case I then again will fall. I, I want to get to the bottom of what they're thinking and like what is right. in their head before yeah. I go in for it. Okay. 
So, and it'll be like, what, what leads you to feel that way? What, what experiences have you had? What examples do you have? So I'm like you, I'm very exploratory because I need to know what this is about and where this is coming from. And, and, you know, it's so interesting because sometimes I have initially thought that someone is saying something sexist or racist or homophobic or whatever. And then I'll ask the question and they'll say something. And I'll be like, Oh my God, I heard it completely wrong. Right. Because I'm, I'm, my lens is so um, about interrupting bias. It's like, I bias everywhere. Yeah. Right. I get it. But, but then a lot of the times, or there are times where I'm like, nope, we definitely don't see eye to eye on this one. And then in that moment, I, I will make a decision about the extent to which I want to correct or I want to engage. And, you know, this is a really important point as well. And I'm sure a lot of your people listening can relate to this. It's like when you are the lonely only or you come from a marginalized or oppressed uh, group, it's like you are fighting the fight all day long for yourself. And then it's a Saturday night and you're like, I'm at dinner. I just want to chill F out. And now you're making some comments and I have signaled to you that this is not cool. Like I always say something like, hmm, uh, you know, it's interesting that you feel that way. Uh, I actually don't see it that way. And in fact, I, a lot of what you've said is troubling to me and I find it to be quite offensive and um and I'll use whatever language I, I, I want to just signal, like, I totally disagree. Mm-hmm. And then in that moment, I either go in for it and deconstruct, or I have a moment to decide, do I actually want to take this on in this moment at this time? And, and this goes back to, like, feeling safe and secure. Because if I'm the only person of color at the table, like, do I really want to fight the fight of racism in that moment? Maybe not. Or if I know that around me are sister soldiers and brothers and, and, and my peeps who will chime in, um, or they're taking the lead, I, I may chime in w- as well. Uh, I, we as individuals must decide in the moment if we feel safe and resilient in that moment to share or not. And sometimes we will and sometimes we won't. Uh, can I give you a really a quick other example? Yeah. of how? To, so this self-check-in around should I speak or should I not, it, it helps us interrupt racism, sexism, other forms of oppression, but it all it helps us determine whether um, we can put more of our authentic selves out there. But it can also help us create a better, uh, more kinder, connected world. I was on um, the bus yesterday in Toronto, and yes, I take the bus um, before you throw a crack at me. I was <laughs> Too bus. easy, yeah. And I get on the bus, and it was like just messy weather in the city, yada yada. Uh, the bus is crammed. I, I get, I'm right at the front and right in the front of the bus in, in Toronto, there, there's like a row of priority seating uh, meant for p- people who are elderly and disabled and pregnant women and more. And so there's a bunch of people sitting there who don't visibly look to me like they have issues that would cause them to sit there. But those are my biases. Maybe they did and I don't know. But point is, that an elderly man got on right after me and I'm standing holding a pole smashed in like a sardine and he gets on and he um, is elderly, visibly elderly, and he's using a cane Mm -hmm. and he gets on and he's, he, and we're right at the front of the bus in front of the priority seating and no one budges. And not only do they not budge, they don't say anything to him. So I see this all go down and my mother and my father are elderly, but my mother in particular has, um, is quite unwell. And I just, ever since she has become more and more unwell, I run everything through, um, a disability lens and also like an elder care lens. Right. And I look and I'm, and I'm looking at them and I'm looking at him and in my head, I have a dialogue going, Oh my God, they didn't say anything. And then I'm swearing at them and and maybe unfairly, I recognize that too, but I am swearing at them. And 
I'm looking at him and then in my head, I'm like, should I say something to them or should I say something to him? And, and then I'm like, no, I know what I should do. I should ask him if he needs a seat, even though I'm standing, mm-hmm. like, I should say something to him. And then I'm like, no, don't do that. And it's a very Canadian thing. No, no. Cause then you'll make a scene and then, yeah. and, and then I hear the, my authentic self advocate voice because I did write a book about authenticity and being authentic. Mm-hmm. I say to myself, no, you feel like this, something might be wrong here. You should say something. And if you don't say something, who's going to say it? Right turned to him and I said to him, uh, uh, excuse me, sir, do you need a seat? And he looks at me, he smiles. He's like, no, my dear, no, I, I don't, but thank you so much for asking. And I went, okay. And I said, and I asked him again, are you sure? Because I find that the knee jerk reaction whenever we offer someone help is no on the first try. Yeah. I asked again, are you sure you don't? Because oftentimes on that, sure you don't. And you pause and you're looking at the person, the person may say, actually, yes. Right. I paused and I looked and he said, no, I don't. And I said, okay. And then I turned and I looked at them all and I said loudly, um, if he did need a seat, you know, I'd be kicking one of you out of uh, your seat. <laughs> I looked at them. I looked down at them and I was towering over them. Power, power position. I'm like, I'm towering over you. Yeah. And one of them looked at me like deer in the headlights. The other one, ignored, a few of them ignored me. Some of them had their headphones and they didn't give an F anyway. Yeah. But there was a woman who looked up at me and she looked, and she said, good for you. You're right. Good for you. And I would have given the seat. And I just nodded at her and smiled. Nice, nice. You know, and that was one of those moments where I tuned in and I said to myself, do you want to say this? And at first I was like, no, I don't want to say it. And I'm like, no, you should say it. And I went back and forth, back and forth. And then I said, but you should do this. And in the, and my nervous system, it felt safe and confident, resilient to do it in the moment. So I did. And Whether it's racism or building a better world, this is the kind of self-check we need to do, self-coach, and then use our voice to interrupt. And I think, and I think, I think it's okay for um, us to recognize that we, we're not going to do it every single time and to not beat ourselves up. Because I, we've all been in those situations where we wanted to say something, we wanted to do what was right, and we, and we cowered and we became fearful. And we, we gave ourselves um, all kinds of justifications as to why we shouldn't do it or why it was inappropriate. Mm. So, it, and, and to forgive yourself. And it's okay that if, if you don't do it every time. And, and it's great, though, of course. It's powerful and it's a beautiful thing that you, when you do it. Um, I know Can that I don't... Just, just one, one quick thing. Um, I call it scripting, uh, and I've done a video on it. You can just Google my name, Rithu Basin scripting, and the video should come up, uh, or go to my website, rithubasin.com. It'll be there. Basically, the neuroscience tells us that when we uh, plan out what we will say or how we will behave in in the future, we move it from conscious brain into unconscious brain. So what, that when we are triggered and we feel stuck or afraid or um, unable to engage in the behavior or speak, we're more likely to do it because it's in our unconscious brain and it's accessible. So scripting can be a powerful way to help us in situations where we would normally freeze. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I know that you, I'm, I only have you for a short amount of time before I have to let you go. So a couple of quick uh, things I want to make sure I get in there. Uh, number one, it, at this point right now, when we look at the world of oppression that, that of course still is very, uh, prominent within the, in the society that we live, if you could, if you could get everyone right now listening to this to just at least make one change that they can change immediately that would help alleviate some of the oppression that we face in this world, what would that be? And give me like you know a one minute answer on that because I want to make sure I get a couple more questions in. Give it to me. I know there's a million things, but like what's one that comes? Don't worry if you if you don't find the number one thing. What's one yeah. that comes to mind? I would say 
uh, heal your own woundedness and your insecurities. Um, we hate on others because we lack self-love, but the reason we lack self-love is because others hate on us. So when we feel more whole and, and healthy mentally, physically, spiritually about who we are, we're more, we're less likely to want to tear others down. And, uh, we're, we feel better about who we are and we put more of our authentic selves out there and everything comes back to self-love. And I know that sounds like a really effing cheesy, uh, piece of feedback, but it, it's true. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. I, I feel like, uh, just even the other day I found myself, um, kind of just speaking badly about mm -hmm. people that we know uh, and and just it could be just stupid stuff like it's like oh yeah so have you noticed that uh, my brother today uh, at the dinner table didn't ask any one of us any questions about our lives and it's like why do I have to make that the focus and I realize that a lot of my um the reason why I've been talking like that lately is because I've just been frustrated with life and because I've been maybe not in the exact position of power that I've experienced in the past. And, and, uh, and, and to cope, to cope with it and to compensate, I, I had to put someone else down. And, uh, and, and I think it's a great point. So, so that's nothing cheesy about that at all. Okay. So, um, it would be a shame to not have you at least take a minute to talk to us then about, um, your book and about, I mean, you have been speaking about it and that is the fact that you do believe in the importance to living authentic, authentically and the way you did in the bus. Um, yeah. What does it mean for a person to live an authentic life? Okay, we know that self-love is part of it. What else does it mean? Yeah. So my book is called The Authenticity Principle. And um, I wrote the book to help people who feel like they can't be who they are because of bias and judgment coming their way and the constant pressure to conform and change who we are in a society that judges us. And... Uh, the, uh, the authenticity principle is rooted in this idea or, or my definition of authenticity, which is authenticity is about the consistent practice of choosing to know who we are, to embrace who we are and be who we are as much as possible so that we feel better about who we are. It'll make us happier. Uh, we bring this spirit into our interactions with others. And by doing so, we encourage others to be authentic back with us. And therefore, we create far more meaningful relationships. And then if we lead with this spirit or we are consistently behaving with this spirit, of course, it helps to create a more inclusive, empowered, creative, innovative um, world or a workplace. And so living an authentic life is about making micro and macro conscious and unconscious decisions all day long about revealing who we are at our core as much as possible, even though judgment and bias might come our way. And living an authentic life is about strategically choosing to adapt our behaviors in moments where it, our authentic self will actually harm us or harm others and uh, do it knowingly, willingly, uh, in a way that serves us and serves the needs of others. And so we're trying our best to live as authentically as possible. And then we're also choosing to adapt our behaviors when we need to do it. What we are not doing in an authentic life is what I call performing. And when I say perform, I don't mean high performance. I mean, like life is a stage and you're putting out this false actor curated sense of yourself. And when you're living an authentic life, you are realizing where it is that you are conforming or masking aspects of your identity to meet the needs of others in a way that makes you feel like crap. Like it, you feel humiliated and disempowered because you're having to change who you are to fit in, which ultimately doesn't serve us. So that's what living an authentic life is about. Amazing. So basically stop being a character in someone else's play and rather 
just truly, you know, be clear yeah. on who it is that you that you want to be and that you are, and to uh, embrace it. I mean, if that's the food you want to order in the uh, off the menu, if that's exactly. you know the way you want to contribute in the boardroom, or if that's the way you want to make love, be you and, and 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 be and and to stop you know questioning it and stop putting it through a filter of of how other people might perceive it. A hundred percent. Like, I will tell you this, um, given my journey, which I, again, I talk about in the book, but there's, if you don't want to buy the book, I have a lot of free resources, online videos, blogs at RizzyBistine.com and across social media. Um, I, for decades, morphed and changed and conformed and all of that to the point where I became lost to fit in. So I'd gained some level of social acceptance and it hurt me in the end. And I now in committing to living a life of authenticity, feel the best I ever have. And it like literally set me free. And so if you want to live a better life, building a life rooted in authentic authenticity is critical. I, I, it's, it's a fantastic gift to give yourself. Well, I couldn't agree more. That's, that's a beautiful, that's a beautiful way to end this off. And that that's such uh, important things for all of us to hear. And, and I think it's important and, and- for Go ahead. And I was going to say, and and actually, Stuart, um, it's one of the reasons why I value you and I value our friendship. Um, I disagree fundamentally with a lot of some of the things that you believe in in moments. <laughs> and you and I don't see eye to eye on some issues. But mm-hmm. what I do value about you is that you are authentic. And um, it's a it's a magnet. And that's what draws me to you. Aww, well, that makes me feel nice and warm and fuzzy. So, well, I'm going to have more people of color on the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you really should. Oh, there, there's my wicked cackle laugh again. <laughs> there it is. There it is. Hey, listen, I know you got to go, um, but I'm going to have to have you back on the show because we didn't oh, get in. Yeah. We didn't get into the uh, the whole point about you know how I feel that white people don't have a voice anymore. I know. See, we're going to bring yeah. one of our bar talks into this, but we'll do that in the future. Listen, um, I'm so glad that you made that decision uh, many years ago to. Uh, pivot away from being a lawyer and to you know away from not being your authentic self and toward something that is important to you and something that you know makes such a big difference because I know it has and I've spoken to people who have told me personally how much of a difference you've made in their lives and um, it's it's courageous to see what you've done and and, and uh, even though I know you love it and I know you love being the antagonist and I know you love leading uh, let's face it there's some days when it's scary and days when yeah. uh, you have to be the one who's the uh, at the end of somebody's mean words. And so thank you for doing what you do. Um, and, and thank you for all the ways in which you affect the lives of other people. And and for those who are listening and, and they want to keep on kind of this conversation with you, whether it's through your blogs or whether it's through your free videos or your book, um, can I give us the list of the best places for people to reach you out there in that world of social media? Oh, bless. First of all, thank you so much, Stuart. It means so much for for uh, to me for you to have me on the show and your kind words. I'm so grateful. And when I see you in a few weeks, I'll buy you a drink. <laughs> Deal. Uh, and then you can buy me dinner. Um, no, no doubt. Um, so, so a great resource for you is my website, uh, rithubasine.com. Uh, and while you're there, sign up for my mailing list so that you can get all the inspiration and free tools and all that to your um, inbox. And you can also check out uh, my stuff across social media. I love Instagram storying in particular. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn as well. My handle, Rithu underscore Basine. Perfect. Okay. Well, we'll make sure it's all in there too when uh, people are looking through the, the descriptions on this. Um, okay. You got to run. You got to call. I know you got to get to it. Lots of love. Love you so much. And love uh, too. Thanks, babe. And uh, I really appreciate you being on the show. We will speak to you soon. So stay Thank tuned, folks. Thank you. 
Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to The Stuart Knight Show, where I interview some really amazing people and feel so fortunate to be able to do so. And I feel even more fortunate today because I'm not going to do an intro because we already did the intro and we're doing something we've never done before on The Stuart Knight Show. We're actually having a part two of a podcast. And I have felt in many occasions that I've wanted to keep the conversation going with my amazing guests. Um, However, in this case, I felt like there was no choice. We have to go to a part two because to me it was left off and there was such a, a depth of, of conversation that we were having. And so I asked Ritu to come back. So it's been two or three weeks since we uh, last chatted and I've just skimmed through the last podcast and caught myself up to date uh, on where it was that we left off and what we were speaking about. So Ritu... Welcome back hey to the show. There. Here we hey go. there. Hey there. Hey there. Hey, hey. It's funny, right? Because when someone's listening to this, if, most likely they go right into part two. And uh, for you and I, it's been two or three weeks, and we only have a very short period of time together. We've got 35 minutes together, folks. So we are not going to waste any time. So for those of you who are just listening to part one, and maybe you didn't even listen to part one, you're just coming right into part two. Obviously, Ritu and I talked about you know, inclusion, diversity. We talked about um, marginalization. We talked about uh, appropriation, cultural appropriation. And we talked about how Ritu got into what, where she, you know, what, what she does today. And we talked about um, the important work that she does and why this is a topic that needs to be on the tip of everyone's tongue. But I'm going to switch gears now, okay? And I'm going to be the, the white guy who asks the questions that I know white people have but they feel like they're not allowed to ask. And the great thing about my relationship with Ritu is that we have one that's very candid, very open, and very vulnerable. And so we have a lot of these conversations behind closed doors. And so we're going to jump right into that now and and move on from where we were, which was, yes, this is important. But I want to ask, as people are doing the work that you do, and you and I know other people who do this great work, is there ever a moment where when somebody of color or somebody from a marginalized community or somebody who's from the LGBTQ community, whatever it might be, um, takes it too far? Is there ever a moment where they are demanding their rights and we as a society might step back and say, hey, you know what? Like, that's just too much. You're asking for too much. What are your thoughts on that? Because I know this is not the first time you've heard this. Yeah. So picture a situation with a friend or a family member, like a beloved that you have where they give you constructive feedback or they're really um, they're They care deeply about an experience that they have or a way that you treat them and they will bring it up to you repeatedly or often enough that you're now sensitive and aware about it. And You'll be in the midst of a fight and they'll say to you, there you go again. You're doing that thing that you do. You always interrupt me or you roll your eyes or you're condescending when we are talking or you're dismissive. And then in your head, you're like, WTF, you're so hypersensitive and this is so annoying and you always jump to this and blah, 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 blah. Can you picture that moment? Like, Sure, of course. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? So... So we all have this happen to us in our experiences with our friends and family members where it's like, oh, God, here you go again. Mm -hmm. And our automatic knee-jerk reaction is to be dismissive or to want to shut them down. But then because we care about the person and we love the person and we 
know that we have to coexist with the person and we have our picture on, sorry, we have our eye on the bigger picture on the prize, which is having a beautiful, cohesive, loving relationship with that person. We say, okay, that my initial reaction is to be like, F you, this is stupid. You're stupid. This is, you're so sensitive. You're so meh. Right. Um, and to, to dismiss the person. But then we say, okay, now let me check myself and take a pause here. That's my initial reaction. Fine. But what what's really happening here? And What's what's important for me in this moment to maintain this loving, cohesive, healthy relationship? And it's like to hear the person out and put ourselves into the other person's shoes and to feel that experience out with the person and to recognize that we may not intend to uh, upset our beloved. That's not our intention. But sometimes our actions and oftentimes our actions, the impact is upsetting to the other person. So it's not about the our intention, it's about the impact. And I would say the same human principle applies to when we are exploring issues of marginalization or oppression or bias with people from cultural communities that we're not part of, mm-hmm. uh, especially when we come from cultures that have more power, privilege, and supremacy than those communities. So oftentimes our, our knee-jerk reaction may be, oh, there those people go again, right. or they're so sensitive and whatever. Mm-hmm. And that may be our instant knee-jerk reaction. And remember, the brain is wired for the negative, so it's easier to do that. Sure. Uh, than it is to take the pause and go, okay, uh, this may cause agitation or activation in my body, but it makes sense that it would because it's harder to do the work, to take a pause, to slow down and say, what's really happening here? What's my role in it? What do I care more about? And so like on this, what do I care more about? Talk is cheap. Okay. Like so I'm just so fed up with people saying that they care about making a world a better place. And then what are they doing? Drinking repeatedly out of water bottles, throwing water bottles all over, like on the streets and yada yada. And like, if you really care about the environment, like, what are you doing to minimize your waste? Right. Um, if you really care about interrupting racism, sexism, homophobia, uh, heterosexism, and more, elitism, and more, what are you really doing to alter your actions? If you care about interrupting poverty, what are you doing to help build uh, a world or a community that where resources are, uh, resources are better distributed? So talk is so cheap now. It's like, what are you doing to actually change your actions? So when we hear someone from a community that we do not belong to that experiences forms of oppression say something and our knee-jerk reaction is check yourself take a moment acknowledge the knee but then but then think about what is more important here around behavioral change and i think there's two sides to what you're saying the first side i completely agree with and that's the side you just said which is if, you, if a person finds themselves having kind of like a negative reaction to somebody who's um, offering a genuine complaint, that quite often it is a few things. It could be, A, you're just lazy and you don't want to have to do the work and uh, going down that path of really just having to think about what the person's saying. B, it could be that you just don't like um, having a mirror put in front of your face uh, that shows you that you haven't been an amazing person or that your culture hasn't been an amazing culture or that you're ancestor haven't haven't ancestors haven't been incredible people and that's hard for people to be able to swallow and so for that reason they try to push it away and i agree with you 100 percent. but let's go back to the example of uh, a friend who is complaining about something and you roll your eyes what i feel and that i think some people feel is that with that friend 
you've sat with them and you've listened to their complaint and you've listened to their their gripe and it's been absolutely legitimate maybe they're they're complaining about let's say a, a negative manager a negative boss or a person who speaks badly in in front of others about that person and that's a legitimate concern but eventually i think there's that time where as a friend is there a time where we get to stand up to that friend and say hey look you know what um there has your you, you know your your boss came in the other day and uh, he or she um, took a, a seat that was convenient to them and it was a seat that was not next to you. And here you are now, we're having drinks at the bar and you're telling me that the boss did that because they don't respect you. Uh, is there a time where we get to come back and say, well, you know what? It's possible also that that boss just took that seat at the table because it was the closest to the door and they wanted to you know, be able to get to the bathroom fast because they're having you know, stomach issues. Like, again, I, I'm making an example up here in the spot, but is there ever a time where it's actually just not about cultural appropriation or it's just not about racism? Um, and, and is there room for a discussion on that? Is, I guess, is there ever a time when maybe it's just like the merits of the... Of, of what's happening and then has nothing to do with, with skin color? So the short answer is yes, there are individual situations where uh, it's not about culture. It's about a lack of quality in or a lack of skills or a lack of competency in the individual. Right. And it's not an overarching systemic problem. But the, but the challenge here is that there is a, a glaring insidious, overt systemic problem where people of color and indigenous peoples who are excellent repeatedly are left out. However, here's what's fascinating. I love that you raise this. I'm a published author. I have an Amazon bestselling book. My book by all accounts would be a Canadian bestseller. Um, if you look at the numbers, it has sold uh, by Canadian uh, book uh, numbers. Uh, it is record-breaking sales, given that I self-published as well. Um, when I tell publishers what my self-published book that came out at the end, it's called The Authenticity Principle, by the way. You can check it out. Go online. Woo! Buy a copy. It's available everywhere. Um, online, audiobook, ebook, and a hard copy book. Uh, <laughs> um, when I tell publishers how many copies I've sold, they, they, they literally look at me like, wow, that's amazing. You should be very proud of yourself. Now, I had an extremely hard time when I put my empowerment book out. It's an empowerment book. It's not a book about, the book is not called White People, We Want to Interrupt Your Supremacy. The book is an empowerment book. It's called The Authenticity Principle. It's about how do you live more as yourself, interrupt pressures to conform so that you can thrive in how you work, live, and uh, lead. It is not an edgy, provocative book. And by the way, the book is excellent in terms of quality. How do I know? My book sales are an example of this. I repeatedly experienced challenges getting mainstream media to support having me on their shows, printing articles about it, having me on um, uh, radio interviews and more. It was such a challenge. Um, my PR agent, who I hired to help me do the um, publicity around the book, it was an older white woman, extremely successful, her um, Rolodex, a client's past Canadian author she had worked with, was extensive, which is why I hired her. She actually, Stuart, cried. I mean, like, like tears came out of her eyes standing in front of me outside of a radio interview when she said to me, I cannot believe you are excellent, your book is excellent, and 
people repeatedly are not are giving me negative feedback about having you on and I think I know what this is and when I said to her I knew what it was I said what is it and she says I think it's racism and then she started to cry Mm -hmm. and she was so upset about it I had expected that this would happen because I'm so used to despite my excellence having to re-audition for roles or to advocate to the bone about why I'm worthy and then still having doors shut in my face so so sometimes, yes, a person will create shitty work product or not lack the skills, and it makes sense for why the door is shut in their face when they are a person of color or they are indigenous. But the problem that we now have in our society is there are so many of us who are not mediocre. We are not shitty. We are excellent. And why are we excellent? Because we constantly have to re-audition for the same role. We constantly have to fight harder, work harder, because the system and people, the people who have interactions with us, do not think we're good enough. Why? Because their conscious and unconscious brains hold bias that because we are not white skinned, we are brown, black skinned, we're Asian, etc., that we are not good enough. And and then to combat that, we go out and we get more educated, we work harder, we spend more time doing the tasks that we do and our skills develop and develop and develop. And so this is the place that we're in. We're excellent. Mm-hmm. We're excellent. So when the doors close in our face it's, and we, we are increasingly using our voices to call out the negative experiences we're having, this isn't a boo-hoo-hoo sob story because I did shitty work and I want you to, to buy my shitty work. This is a, no, I'm fucking excellent. My work is excellent and I'm sick of having to fight the system and so the last thing i'll say here is i recognize that for some white people some because not all because there are a lot of a lot of really elevated um enlightened um white people out there who are conscious and aware for some white people though this is a really scary place to be and it's a really scary place to be because sometimes for white people uh operating at at a seven out of 10 level has enabled them to advance and get ahead and access leadership opportunities and access good pay and access good neighborhoods and healthcare and yada, yada, yada. But now you have people of color all around who are nine out of 10 at buying for the same opportunities and doors and experiences. And you're at a seven out of 10 and you see someone in your lane or in the lane next to you who's a nine out of 10 and they don't look like who you're used to seeing in the lane next to you, it can be very uncomfortable and threatening. And I have no doubt, I have no doubt that that is true. And, and, and I think though that to keep this in context, everything you're saying, I believe, I agree that um, there are countless exa- examples of uh, people who are excellent at what they do and they have not been given the same shake as somebody who is either as good or less lesser than uh, and, and they happen to be a Caucasian. I guess, though, when you were talking about um, your experience of how difficult it was to take a, a self-development book and to get the press that you truly do deserve, which I agree you do deserve. But as you were saying that, I found myself thinking about how that has been true for myself throughout my entire life. And I felt just as incredulous, wondering how is it that I can continuously keep producing what I believe and what I'm told by many people who uh, I think have serious credibility um, is is great material. And, and whether it's through the book form, whether it's through my podcast, whether it's through my own corporate speaking, you name it. And I think, God, why is it still so hard to get noticed on certain things or to get ahead and I feel like 
when you choose an industry like the one that you and I have chosen, which whether it's you know b- being in the, in, the, in the spotlight or an, an industry where you, um, it's, it's very much the road less traveled, that it feels like it is so difficult for all of us. And I have no doubt it is more difficult for a person of color. I will be the first one to say that. However, I guess the question I'm asking is, is that does it get to the point, and you've maybe kind of changed my question a little bit, is it, does it get to the point where would you ever consider maybe even giving advice to other people of color to say, hey, before you assume that the reason why you're not getting ahead is because of uh, the color of your skin, make sure you've done the true work to really look at what it is that you've created or what it is that you're doing or what your skill set is um, to absolutely be sure that it's not that first and has nothing to do with the color of your skin. Because I feel like... We so let me, let me just, I'm going to stop you here. Why does that, so, so let's, let's, let's get really into it. Why does that question even matter? Like, so, so why must a person of color, an indigenous person have to pause and say, is this really about racism or is this about me not being good enough? Why, why should a person of color or an indigenous person have to um, partake in that inquiry in the first place? Well, and, and I think that's a great question that my answer to that would be because we all do. Because I, I, I can find myself um, easily in, in situations where I might say, oh, I didn't get the speaking gig because I'm not famous. Because I, let's say I recently I, I had a gig that I was up against with this other guy, and he's on a television show. And my very first thought was, well, it's because, you know, he's just a recognizable face and I'm not, and that's why he got the gig. And to me, I have to realize that I think that I might be kind of being a bit of a cop-out when I do that. Maybe the reality is, is that what it is that I'm offering isn't just as good as him. And he's a white male. And I think I have to do that as much as we all do. I think that we mm-hmm. all have to ask mm-hmm. ourselves that question. And so I got you. And, yeah. and that, that's where I'm coming from. I just feel like, and, and back to this example that we're talking about with our mutual friends. Okay, but I, I'm, I'm ready to, like, I, I, so, so I, I have a response for you. Okay. So um, when we come from a community that society views as being better than others so for example when we are able-bodied so when we do not have lived experience with a physical disability or a mental health illness or when we are heterosexual or when we are cisgender or when we have class privilege or when we are educated or when we are a cisgender man or when we are a uh, white person right 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 right. and I could keep going on going on and on um, when we have more power privilege and supremacy than others the system is working in our favor. Uh, why? Because everyone in the system and the system itself views this as better. So when you have supremacy uh, and power and privilege, it makes sense for you to start with the questioning, hmm, what am I, am I really good enough here? Or do I really have the skills? Or what did I do wrong here? Um, in in preventing myself from accessing this opportunity or what do I need to do more of? It makes sense that you would start there. Mm -hmm. When you have, when you lack power, privilege and supremacy, individuals in the system and the system itself views you inferior, not because you actually are, but just because you uh, belong to a certain cultural community, you absolutely constantly omnipresently if that is even a word (laughs) are holding the question of how is the system working against me how is oppression impacting me and marginalization impacting me that question should 
and is always there with you. It should be there. You should never take it away. Why? Because the system is against you, sure, unfortunately, individual. So you have to hold that question. In tandem, it might make sense to also hold the question, what more can I do? And in fact, often we don't have a choice. When it's the system is when the system and individuals in the system are against us, we constantly have to say to ourselves, what more can I do? What more can I do? What more can I do? And in fact, the problem and the issue for a lot of us isn't the analysis of, hmm, what more do I need to do? Or what more should I have done? Or what are the traits that I lack or skills that I lack? What are my deficiencies? The problem often becomes that we anchor to that and we constantly are, are thinking to ourselves, we aren't good enough. And in fact, this is the, one of the problems that happens with bias uh, that we rarely talk about, although I talk a lot about it in my videos and blogs online and in my book as well, that for a lot of us who come from marginalized communities, we internalize bias. It's called internalized oppression or inter internalized bias or internalized racism, sexism, et cetera, which means that without even knowing it, Stuart, our bodies and our minds come to believe that we are less um we are less worthy, we are less competent. We come to believe our bodies hold the energy that we are inferior and our minds hold that as well. And so, for example, in a meeting when we should speak because we're the expert in the room or it's our portfolio, rather than like openly chatting, our bodies are gripped with fear and like we just feel really tense and you feel sweaty and anxious and nauseous and you're, you heat up and you're like, speak and you're like, I can't. That's your body saying not worthy or in your brain, you hear speak, but then you're like, no, you're so stupid. You're going to say it wrong or your grammar will be off or whatever. People will make fun of you like they laughed the last time. when oh, you yeah. the, the. So so for a lot of us, it's not that we're not we're not pausing to engage in the inquiry. It's like, oh, what more do I need to do? Is it my own in, in my own lack of competency here? It's that we're over anchored to it, which is one of the byproducts. And this is but why, that's not you know, the same thing, though, what I'm saying that that's this is yeah. that's that is I would say that that is different. And, and I think what you're saying is absolutely true again. However, if the person does have the courage to speak in that boardroom and they and they share their ideas and the boss turns the ideas down and they say they're not great ideas is it not a disservice for that person to go back to their desk and say that this boss turned down my ideas not because the ideas themselves were not great but because of the color of my skin or because I'm a woman or because I'm gay or because does that not like for any one of us right and and I and I use myself as yeah, an example Yeah I I yeah no I hear you but here's the problem and this is this is why human dynamics and life is so complicated in a system that is designed to favor people just because of their skin color and their sexual orientation and their mental health and whatever, whatever, in, in the system designed like this, if you belong to the group that is viewed as the less than, you can't subtract that inquiry from your thoughts. If I, you, I, I get that. I get it that. will always be there with you. So yes, you can go back to your desk and go, okay, the boss shot down my ideas. I need to come up with new ideas. But the problem will always be was your idea a shitty idea in the first place or was your idea actually genius that the person shot down because they held bias against you? You'll never one, know the definitively or, or, or it's both. It could be both too, right? Like it could be all of it. So the problem is we can't separate it out. And this is what makes dealing with issues of oppression so complicated and challenging. And it doesn't make sense to say to people who come from marginalized communities, focus on your own deficiencies first, 
and then the system will improve. It's like it, we must recognize all of it. We must recognize that that, yes, sometimes people who come from marginalized communities are not they are underperforming or they're under delivering because they lack skills. But even that, the, the under delivering or lacking of the skills, is it because they actually truly don't have the potential or is it that um, they are nines out of tens, but they have nine out of 10 or 10 out of 10 potential. Right now they're a seven out of 10. The white dude in the office next door is a six out of 10, but people have cultivated him and he's managed to get up to a seven and a half, but he's still being promoted. Whereas the person of color or the, the person who has a, uh, has a disability is a six and a half out of 10, has the potential to be a nine. No one's cultivating that person. And I agree with so, you. So, so the, the, we can never separate out this analysis. And I think this is, this is, I mean, the fact that you and I are spending so much time talking about this one issue is a really good example of how we as human beings, the way our brains work, like to compartmentalize, like to make things simple. We want it to be either or. We, like, we love binary ways of thinking, especially in the Western, Western world. I'm using, you can't see me, everyone, but I'm putting, doing that thing with your fingers, like quotes. In the Anglo-rooted world, we love binary thinking, either or. So it's like, it's either you're individually deficient or it's the system. Or it could be that you're excellent and it's the system. Or it could be that it's the you uh, the, the system is flawed and your skills are flawed. It could be it could be myriad things. But you do we agree, want... though, there are times that where it is, you, you, you at least can um, acknowledge that there are times where a person of color or a person who is gay or a person who is in a wheelchair... Who's, of course. Who's just not competent. It actually happens. It's a real thing. Like, so, for example, like when I launched my business 10 years ago, I remember a white dude. Uh, I was, I think I was like six months into my business. And I met with him for a um, uh, mentoring coaching. And he's a business leader. And he has like access to all kinds of opportunities. And I met with him for coffee. And he was awesome. And I said to him, okay, I would love, uh, basically, uh, nicely, politely. And very, it took me like a lot of chutzpah to even ask this kind of thing. I was like, are you able to help me with this or introduce me to so-and-so? And I, he looked at me and he said to me, Ritu, you need to learn um, to walk before you run. And basically he was saying like, he could see in me the ambition and the desire and all of that, but he could also see that I was way too green for some of the things I wanted to do okay. and have him open up doors for me immediately to do. And I remember uh, leaving that experience and for weeks afterwards, like that, that language bounced around in my head and I was mad at him. I was irritated. I was like, who are you to tell me I shouldn't run and blah, blah, blah. And you know, just the other day I told one of my team members, you need to learn to uh, walk before you run. I was way too green, way too premature. I was not ready for, for the reason he was shutting me down. It was for my own benefit. I wasn't ready. It wasn't because I'm a woman of color and he was holding bias against me. He was correct to say to me, no, okay. I just didn't have the experience. So of course that can happen. Yes. However, um, that is an opportunity. That is a moment, an experience I can share with you, which where I would say to you, yeah, I was underqualified. He was hundred percent correct. Right. But, let me tell you, bro, there are about, I could give you a hundred examples at least of where I am not only qualified, but overqualified for opportunities that I have not had the door open. Totally. And I know that it's because I'm a woman or a woman of color. Hells yeah. Okay. Okay. And I, and I, well, you know, you know, I believe it. I agree with you on that. Yeah, no, no, um, I know. Before you go, cause I know we've only got a limited amount of time left. Um, here I am a white man offering my opinion on the world yes. of, uh, 
uh, marginalization, <laughs> as I always do. I offer opinions on anything. I'll, I'll talk to gay people about what it means to be gay, and I'm not a gay man. Um, what, you and I have had extensive conversations about this. Now, I don't even know if I should even be going down this. Maybe we need a part three, part four, and part five of this conversation. But white people, and I know white men especially, are feeling um, quite honestly afraid to share mm-hmm. their opinion, whether it's on, on social media or in, in social situations or in the workplace, about the kinds of topics that you and I are talking about. Do you feel that that there that, that we have the right to have an opinion on this, or is it one where we should just shut up and not speak? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we It harms the world where when people hold back their opinions. We need to be in a place where we have difficult conversations across differences. I am all about white people, white men, sharing how they feel, share their fears, their vulnerabilities, because frankly, uh, their discomfort and more. Why, Why do I care about this? Because the fact that we're not having these types of conversations openly are it's holding us static. It's also helping it's it's reinforcing biases across the board and so much more. Like I would much rather a leader, a person say to me directly, you know, here's what I'm afraid of, or here's what I believe. And for me to say, okay, I hear you, but now let me tell you why that's not right. And let me tell you what the right thing is here. And then to change someone's mindset or thinking in their brain, I would much rather have that happen than for us to be walking around self-silencing and self-censoring around this. As hard as it is to do, we need to have these open conversations. I'm all about it. And like, you know, you and I are a really good example. We have these difficult conversations. Even today, as we've been speaking, it's been interesting. And I was thinking about this. If someone listens to these these two podcasts back to back, I can't remember what my fire or my spirit was like in, in podcast one, but I have felt activated during this conversation like I can I could feel the fire inside of me I could feel like the agitation when, when we were sharing a little bit mm-hmm. and, and you and I when we have been at dinner and had these conversations like I have felt that same discomfort and agitation um uh, about you and towards you and wanted to be like should I punch him in the nose should I just like <laughs> leave like I'm never going to talk to him again I'm like, like what a tool like how am I even friends with this guy like ugh, this is why I should like, never make friends with a redheaded white dude ever again like 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 I like so so I have had these moments but we sit in the fire now the one thing so so hells yeah white dudes white people should share their opinions I'm all about it And at the same time, I'm going to suggest that, again, in a system that is designed for white men, for the benefit of white men and more, uh, white men should share and listen and listen more because because, you know, we're just not listening enough to how other people's experience life and exercising empathy. I think. And one of the reasons we don't exercise empathy towards others is we don't have it for ourselves. And, you know, lately I've been thinking a lot about the, the, the byproduct of being in a capitalistic global society where the objective for everyone is to acquire more and to work harder and make more money and and all of that and the adverse impact it's having on everything from mother earth to war and how we treat people and but then also how we treat ourselves like if we don't have empathy for ourselves we're not going to have empathy for others this is psychology 101 and but empathy is one of those things we need in moments like this where where we have to have difficult conversations because yes you should share but yes you must also listen and actually when we have more power privilege and supremacy the onus is on us to alter our behavior as opposed to expecting others alter theirs that's fair yeah that's fair 
That's the one time I'm going to agree with you again. But, oh my uh, god! That's it. Oh my god! Aren't you like so? So so. I, first of all, I should tell you, I'm like super honored that this is like the first time you've had a guest back for like <laughs> podcast number two, right. and you've already offered me three and four. Um, thank you so much. In fact, why don't we do a full podcast just about me? This is so great. <laughs> you know what? Annoying I mean? as f. <laughs> you, you you and I, I think, need to have. I think it'd be fantastic, and and we'd have to go in like total gloves off. Where we should do something on stage sometime in front of a live audience. Where we just give ourselves two full hours and we go right yeah. into like the depths of it. Because even now, like I know we don't have time, but like, and, and I know you were feeling activated and, and I feel activated too. And I think that's fantastic. And, yeah. and, and we both want to get our opinions out because we're both, you know, uh, fiery human fi- beings. Fiery type A personality. Fiery like your red hair. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. My beautiful red hair, I think is what you yeah, want to say. Yeah, you have a lot of hair. Like, given how old you are, I can't believe how much <laughs> thick red hair you have. Well, the next time we see each other, which is this Friday, I'll let you touch it, okay? <laughs> uh, Only if you wash it before. Oh, yes. I don't like, sometimes you're like, you look at people's hair and you're like, ugh, did you wash your hair? I'm like, I would ever touch your unwashed hair. <laughs> oh, God. Well, don't, well, lucky for you, Friday is my uh, hair washing day, and that's when we're getting together. <laughs> Um, so I'm going to let you go because I know you got to go for a call, but, um, we clearly have more to talk about, but, uh, this has been another great conversation. Thank you for your time. And, uh, I'll see you for lunch on Friday and go do your thing. And ladies and gentlemen, this has been Rick Dubassine. I mean, at the end of the first podcast, we gave you all of her details, but, uh, they will also be in the what do you call it, the written component of this below the podcast. You can get in contact with her on Instagram and on Facebook and Twitter and make sure you get her book. Make sure you listen to her blogs and vlogs and everything else that she's doing that's great. She's changing the world one annoying way at a time. Uh, so, <laughs> love you, Awesome. Tons. All right. Okay. Love you, too. Bye. Okay, bye, bye everyone. Okay, see ya. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Stuart Knight Show. We hope you've enjoyed this powerful conversation. People are fascinating, and so are you. And the right questions will prove it. We'll prove it. We'll prove it.